Welcome to the Peacebuilding Podcast. Join host Susan Coleman as she interviews today's most creative, courageous, and sometimes outrageous mediators, coaches, entrepreneurs, and out-of-the-box thinkers whose work, whether intended or not, is building peace. Tune in for 45 minutes of pure inspirations as we explore the best stories, best practices, best ideas of a new world emerging. Here is your host, global consultant, coach, facilitator, and mediator, Susan Coleman. I, I just want to say at the outset, Harrison, that, um, I mean, you, pro- you must get this all the time, but it is, it is such a privilege to, it feels, I just feel very grateful to you, really, because you have totally impacted my life. And I think about a number of the people on this podcast that I've been interviewing, how many of them have been really deeply influenced by open space technology and the work that you, I don't know, you don't necessarily say you started it, but you started it, you know, and, and uh, people associate you with having started it. So hello, thank you for joining me and the listeners on the Peace Building Podcast. Um, it's really an honor to have you. Um, I don't uh, normally read people's bios, but since you are the... Um, master of pithiness and uh <laughs> don't you think that's fair <laughs> okay <laughs> i think it's fair um i'm gonna i'm gonna read some of yours because it's really it's great um so harrison owen for 40 years he's explored the world and himself seeking the ways and means towards a deeper understanding of who we all are and how we may live productively with meaning and purpose His journey has always been interesting, sometimes exciting, and on more than one occasion, deeply rewarding. (laughs) It's like your humility. Um, He's authored some 10 books, uh, many articles. The first was When the Devil Dances, was a photographic essay, because you also are a photographer as well as author and uh, organizational, and I don't know what you'd call yourself, a consultant, Um, with commentary depicting life in a small West African village. Where was that? What what part of West Africa? I was in Liberia. Okay. Um, I was recently there, actually. Um, His most recent book, uh, bearing the title The Practice of Peace, explores the ways in which the powers of self-organization might lead us to peace, uh, if we will only cooperate. We're going to talk about that. Um, And in between, Harrison has explored the nature of leadership, the evolution of consciousness in organizations, organizational transformation, the power of myth and culture, and of course, open space technology. And he has worked on virtually every continent with organizations ranging from small villages to large corporations and NGOs. His major concern has been to assist organizations as they negotiate a transforming world. In some cases, his role has been little more than holding the hands of the anxious, I love that, and in other situations, his function was more overt, assisting organizations in the sometimes painful process of self-understanding and renewal. In all situations, the organizational mythology and culture was the focal point, and the power of self-organization, the ultimate driver. So, um, anyway. uh, I can go home now, right? Yeah, you can go home now. And if it's not clear to folks, who I have with me right now is Harrison Owen, who is a larger-than-life figure. Uh, he is—he's the facilitator who basically takes long naps 
and never intervenes and, ha- and does that with extraordinary results. <laughs> I, I am wondering if you want to add anything to that, that uh, intro, that bio. I mean, those are your words. So, and, no- and knowing that you are so much the master of pith, you probably don't have anything to add, but maybe you do. Well, I, I could add the way I answered an immigration person the last time I crossed our borders. He asked me, he said, what do you do? And I said, well, I think I write and I talk. He said, about what? I said, I don't think you want to know. He said, right, and waved me through. (laughs) Well, of course, we do want to know, but uh, um, that's pretty funny. So um, how many times do you... um, think that open space has been used around the world. Have you ever tracked any of those statistics? They're virtually impossible to track. I mean, from the moment we first did it in 1985, uh, lots of fun people started using it all over the place. And I don't know, somewhere around 1989, I began to understand that it was important. And the best I mean, I I say it's been used maybe 350,000, 450,000 times. And that's really just an estimate based on the number of uh, books, the so-called user's guide, that have sold uh, on the assumption. I mean, we haven't sold that many, but on the assumption, it's not a book that somebody read would buy for light reading. And the experience has been if they buy it, they'll at least try it. And if they try it once, they'll try it typically multiple times. And I can't remember what sort of fudge factor we use, but Mm -hmm. the sales in English and in, I think, eight foreign languages has gone well over 100,000. So basically, even if those people did uh, one each, we'd be up to 400,000. Um, so I don't really know. I'm not sure it would prove anything one way or another. What we do know a li- with a little greater accuracy is the number of countries where it has been used, and that, I think, is 146, but I, I wow. can't swear to it. Certainly half. I think that's more than half oh, yeah. of countries on Earth. Yeah. And why, why do you think it was you? I mean, I know I've heard you say, like, I didn't invent open space, but certainly it came through you, why, why do you think it was you that midwifed, that it came through? You know, if it was channeled through you or however, it, you know, I don't know. Why do you think it channeled through you? Good gin? I don't know. <laughs> Good gin. <laughs> well, I mean, quite literally, uh, open space arose in my consciousness as in response to a degree of desperation. I had offered to reconvene the, what would then have been the third international symposium on organization transformation in 1985. Sorry about that. I, I was uh, sitting out having my first martini of the season. Uh, it was April and this is Washington and it's a nice place to do that. And it suddenly dawned on me that I had agreed to host, I didn't know what, turned out to be about 100 people in a place that eventually turned out to be Monterey, California, over the 4th of July weekend, about which I had thought nothing. 
And then I also remembered that the first conference that we put together, it took me a whole year of intense labor with, I mean, it was fun, but it was uh, putting together the speakers and, uh, yeah, and all the kind of things you do for a conference. And frankly, I'm an independent consultant and nobody was paying me and once is okay, but twice was more than I wanted to do. So I said, well, yes, I will somehow or another create some space and and whatever happens will happen. Wait, what was the time from when you're drinking the martini to when you have to deliver? Like a month, two months? Well, it was April Let- and July. So yeah, okay, April, okay, April, April, April. okay. Like yeah, it was the it. 4th of July, so it was pretty close on June. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyhow, to make a long story short, the first martini was sort of got me relaxed. This all came to be because of a martini? Uh, Is that really and, the truth? <laughs> and when I got to the second one, I got this image, which was in West Africa, whenever the people have some difficulty they need to work on, uh, in a village, they just sit in a circle. I mean, nobody else and screams at them. There isn't an agenda. Um, there are persons, personages who have sort of roles that they play, but you wouldn't notice that unless you actually knew the village very well. And uh, so that's what they do. And I, so I thought, well, that'd be a good place to start. And then... But you can't just sort of sit there and gaze at each other's navels. Uh, what are we going to talk about? And the image that came to my mind at that point was a bulletin board. And anywhere in the world, if you either want to buy something or sell something, you post it on a bulletin board. Um, it's a technology that's so stupid it can't break. And uh, so that would take care of uh, the items for the agenda. <laughs> and then all you're left with is the sort of logistics, the who, where, what, why, and when. And the image that came to my mind was an indigenous marketplace, and the wonderful thing about them is they just happen. Um, nobody runs them, but if I'm hungry for plantain and you're selling it, we will make a deal. And I don't know how, but it always works. So that was it, and that's when the gin ran out, and I forget what it was, 85, 90, or 100 people showed up in Monterey, California, and we did just that, sit in the circle, created a bulletin board over the marketplace, and in about two and a half hours, and we were pretty laid back about it, um, we had a five-day symposium organized, and it just proceeded. I mean, there was, that was it. There were, nobody ran it, it just sort of ran itself. So what about the uh, the four principles and the one law? Did that come to you with, with the gin as well, or did that evolve? I, I, as near as I can figure out. Let me just say what I'm talking about. There are four principles in open space. Let's see. Whoever comes right, is the right people, people. Whatever happens is the only thing that could have. Uh, there are actually five now. Uh, whatever happens is the only thing that could have. Whenever it starts is the right time. And then one that just sort of popped in, which it was just wherever it happens is the right place. And last one is when it's over, it's over. Um, these are really observations. I mean, it's funny because we called them principal. I remember Elsa, she was assistant secretary of something or another, but in any event, she was in early open space and she said, oh, well, they're sort of 
principles here. And she said it with a smile. And she she was in the U.S. government. Yeah, she was in this <laughs> cabinet level. And also, okay. um, doesn't make any difference. Anyhow, marvelous red dress and white-haired lady, and just delightful. <laughs> um, uh-huh. And she pointed out a couple of them. Um, and did it not in the sense of, well, this is what you ought to do, but this seems to be what's happening here. And so, as near as I can figure out, I think, I think I'm probably responsible for the wording of all five of them, simply because it's, it sort of sounds like me. Um, I have no recollection of ever sitting down and doing it, but it sort of sounds like me. And in each case, it was simply an observation of what happened anyhow. It wasn't mm-hmm. a prescription of what you should do. <laughs> and um, and that's really the beginning, middle, and end of it. Uh, and the law of two feet, the same thing. The law thing. of two feet is exactly the same thing. I mean, it mm-hmm. was an observation of what was happening anyhow. Yeah. And everybody seems to think uh, that, that, of course, you couldn't observe the law of two feet. You'd be impolite or I have no idea what. And the actual truth of the matter is that we all do it. I mean, we, we, never have the, we rarely have the good grace to actually stand up and walk out, which would be a blessing for everybody. Actually, just what is the law of two feet? Just because some people may not know. Uh, it says, the, and, it's, is, <laughs> and I know this is me because I don't think anybody else would quite say it this way, but uh, it is that if at any time during our time together you find yourself in a place where you're neither learning nor contributing, use your two feet, put one foot ahead of the other, and go somewhere more fun. Period. That's it. And um, Actually, I think that may end up being the heart and soul of open space, because... What we've eventually learned, and I'm jumping way ahead, is here we have this open space that's been used all over the place, and it achieves some fairly remarkable results, and raises, I think, the inevitable question of why on earth does it work? Um, if no other reason, it, it violates, as near as I can figure out, absolutely every principle and practice of meeting management for sure and management as a whole. I mean, everybody knows you can't have a meeting without an agenda pre-planned and achieved uh, over great agony and so forth and so on. You have to have somebody in charge. You have to have somebody telling people where to go and when to do it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And absolutely none of that takes place in open space. And we can have and have had three, four, five thousand people um, dealing with 150 or more subjects over a two-day period um, simultaneously. And uh, so how on earth did that happen? And the best and only explanation I've ever been able to come up with is that it just so happens that the, uh, if you will, the cosmic phenomena of self-organizing systems applies equally to human systems, (laughs) (laughs) which actually would be very odd if it didn't, but... But they will so, you know, I think about, like, I've open space many, many, many times. I'm a pretty seasoned practitioner of open space. And yet, I still sweat bullets when I'm in a really hierarchical organization, and I know that what needs to happen is I need to open up some space. 
and I can feel the pressure coming at me, the resistance. Oh, you yeah. know, people are so frightened yeah. by it. And, of course, I get frightened. They're terrified. You know? uh, yeah. and, and the truth. What is that? Oh, they're yeah. scared shitless. I mean, <laughs> I don't know about your editor, but that's the fact. There isn't a word yeah. that handles it. Yeah, uh, yeah. That circle, and more exactly the space, the physical space, is horrifying. Um, you watch, a, particularly a large group, it's easier to see, but you watch the group respond to that, and they'll do anything to avoid it. They'll walk around it, they'll walk across it in pairs, they'll walk right to the edge of it, and like kids at the edge of a swimming pool, leap back and out of the way. Um, so that's real. But if the what I could consider the preconditions are there, which is that you have a real issue that people care about with lots of complexity so nobody could figure it out and lots of diversity so there's a whole mess of people trying to figure it out and lots of conflict and lots of passion and you have a sense of urgency. If you have those five things, and um, what will happen is... Um, I, all you have to do is sit in a circle and create a bulletin board and go to work. And it will happen. I don't care. Um, the, um, so it'd be great to, uh, have you tell a story, uh, cause obviously one, you know, this is the peace building podcast. One of my main questions is why does it work well in a high conflict situation? Um, and I, I don't really know which story you're going to tell, but I think you said, you know, you'd think about it and, and, uh, uh, tell me a story. Maybe you have, yeah, you probably have thousands, but, um, um, to give, give a sense of like how this can be effective. Uh, and then I'm going to ask you why people don't use it more often, but anyway, let's get there later. I mean, can you, could you tell a story or some, some situation where you use this? Sure. One of the, one of the interesting things and things that, that struck me absolutely first on is that hugely conflicted people uh, who had spent a considerable amount of time trying to deal with a particular issue would, for whatever reason, and there was always a different reason, but somehow or another find themselves in an open space and more often than not would come out hugging and kissing and issue solved. And if that was my experience, you know, not, I, you know, I've told you about, solved, it. Yeah. Then, yeah, you know, okay, we now have the pieces or, um, really come, and I've had this happen on several occasions, really come to understand that it wasn't an issue. They just misunderstood each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. they all had a good chuckle and went out and had a beer. Um, Stories. Well, I don't know. The, actually, the first op- you are you are one of the ultimate storytellers. That's also something I didn't say about you in your intro. You're a great a great storyteller, and I think you often say you uh, you admonish people to not believe anything you say. <laughs> but oh, exactly. something like that. That's my standard mantra. But that just gives me a license to go ahead and lie with abandon. I mean, tell the <laughs> truth. But, um, the first open space I ever did for other than just sort of my friends and neighbors, I actually was with a group. It was like, I forget how many people it was, 175 or 200. But these were evenly divided between federal bureaucrats, state and local bureaucrats, and Native Americans. There was, as I recall, a billion and a half dollars on the table. And the thrust of the conference was to 
uh, create the guidelines for the expenditure of this around uh, building highways on tribal lands. And a recipe for conflict. Well, they'd been fighting each other for two years. I mean, it wasn't Mm -hmm. that the Native Americans didn't want the highways. It was just that, you know, engineers tend to look at roads as that which moves from point A to point B. And if it happens to go over a sacred mountain, well, so be it. Tear the mountain down. Um, So it is with that level of understanding that several parties had approached each other. And they got within, I forget, two or three months of... That billion and a half dollars going back to the federal treasury. And nobody was happy. So I don't remember who initiated this. And I don't remember how I got involved. And as a matter of fact, that's almost standard with every open space I've ever done. (laughs) And so, you know, we just sat in a circle, created a bulletin board, opened the marketplace, and they went to work. And for a whole... Where was this happening? This was in Denver. Or, I mean, somewhere near Denver. I don't remember exactly. And you somehow, you know, one of the one of the dilemmas often is that people come up with space, you know, they'll they'll, they'll book the space ahead of time and then they want you to do this. And and so often the space isn't conducive to this at all because people's preconceived notions about how people need to meet and an open space you need. Twice as much space, and it needs to be open, and it needs to be airy. And all and that it, works, yeah. but I mean, uh, I mean, yes, and that's true. And it, it's also true that I've practically done it in the bowling hall. The interesting thing is, open space is not strange and new. It is how we naturally and normally mm-hmm. conduct our affairs. Mm-hmm. We do it in circles. We talk on this random basis. We exercise the law of two feet in one way or another. And it, but Harrison, not exactly, because we use hierarchy. I mean, well, if there's one we thing try about- and control it. Now, this is the interesting part. Somewhere along the line, we got the notion that if somebody isn't in charge, nothing can possibly get done. Now, this turns out to be true for meetings and and, and corporations and federal governments and God knows what all. The absolute truth of the matter is the notion of control is not only illegal, immoral, and fattening. It's all about, it's just delusional. <laughs> and there's a very simple reason for that. And the reason is this, that we live in a world that is so complex, interconnected, fast-moving, and and just ungraspable, we can't even think at that level. I mean, everything interacts with absolutely everything else, which means nothing can possibly be predicted. Now, what you can't think, you can't control. So we have this nasty problem, which is somehow or another we got this idea, and I think it's reasonable we can say where it came from, that somehow or another we must take charge of our destiny and control it. And so we make oh, uh, Okay, so where did it come from? Oh, well, I think a short take is it comes from the one thing that we absolutely can't control, which is one day we're not going to be. Mm-hmm. And so we try everything that we can think of along the way to make sure that that day isn't today. Um, that includes getting a salary or that includes whatever it is. Um, that's an oversimplification, but it, it's always worked for me. <clears throat> so the net effect is that we do the one, I mean, just listen to the logic of this. And, and to me, it, it it's, it's wonderful. 
if life is fundamentally a self-organizing system, I mean, that's the way it happens. The one thing you know is organizing a self-organizing system is not only an oxymoron, it's stupid. Because you can't do it. <laughs> and the only thing you can actually ever guarantee achieve is to screw it up, which we do with abandon. Now, the presumption is that we're doing it for the best of reasons, but what I open space for me became uh, this wonderful natural experiment. Nobody ever in their right mind would ever do what we've done, period, for obvious reasons. And yet, in hundreds of thousands of cases, starting from these uh, this Native Americans and uh, whatever. I loved it. Navajo chief at the end of this thing in the final circle, he he said, and everybody's given, it's a talking stick thing, and everybody's given a chance to just sort of say, not a report out, but what did this mean and what are you going to do with it, that sort of thing, or say nothing at all. Anyhow, he sits there and the stick comes to him and he looks around this circle and he says, you know, I've known most of you for a long time. It is also true that most of you I don't like. <laughs> but I have to say that for the first time in the time that I've known you, we actually had a very productive thing. And I've actually found people I like very much. Now, okay, that's cool. But what... I found at that point, and it's kind of been part of the grist of, for my mill ever since, was all of that happened all totally by itself. Never once did I intervene in any of the groups, or did anybody. We had no facilitators. I mean, just at a very practical level, I forget, we probably had 75 or 80 groups, now, how on earth would a single person do that? No way. Yeah. <laughs> or I'll tell you another story. Um, which well, before, okay, you do. And I want to make sure you uh, tell the end of that story. The, the, oh, they, if we have they went down there, wrote their dirt. I mean, put it all to work. It was done. You know, not only had they, I mean, once they got past the, the, nastiness of it all, putting together the regulations wasn't all that difficult. So in other words, they didn't lose the money, yeah. they figured out how, they, fi they came together and figured out how to spend it, it in the way that worked for yeah, everybody. It was tough. Yeah, an, an incredible, an incredible mediated outcome, if you will, but there was no mediator, it was all, so, was all self-organizing. Exactly. And yeah, and yet, yet there was the, the power of the third side, which I guess, you know, is often written about in conflict resolution worlds, which was just you taking naps and, and, uh, <laughs> and occasionally set, setting up ground rules, set, setting up principles, the law of two feet. And it's not even that. that. I mean, once you mm -hmm. really begin to understand at least what I, after 30 years of doing this, I think I understand more or less what I do, which is I claim the space for everybody else just briefly and then give it back to them. Mm -hmm. And to make it a little bit more uh, acceptable is the wrong word, but, you know, to kind of ease them into it, I give them a quick foretaste of what it's like. That's what the principles do. 
Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you ever get nervous, just notice that whoever shows up, almost inevitably, or I would say inevitably, is the right person to talk to. How did that happen? Well, that's a different issue. I don't know, but that happens, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> so that it really it does run from start to finish totally by itself. But then the reality is, too, people come up throughout and they'll push against you as the facilitator. They'll say, what about da 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 you know, and that just a, that simple act of saying, why don't you take well, care of it? Why don't you go take yeah, care of it? You know, and and it's, one of the um, things that I learned very early on, there's an easy way to avoid that. You disappear. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I don't know how many of your whatever potties, is that the word? <laughs> whatever it is. Uh, listeners. Um, oh, oh potties. Never seen. <laughs> Listener, listeners. That's better than it is. Never mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the other doesn't sound so good. Leave that one alone. Uh, yeah, yeah. Have I ever seen an open space? But, you know, very basically, everybody's sitting in a circle and they announce their issue and they post it on a wall and then they go and sign up for whatever issue they want to and, uh, you know, work on <clears throat> and uh, go to work. And there comes a point where you've got whatever number of people that you had, and it can get really impressive if you've got a group of 500 or a couple thousand or something like that, all facing this wall. I mean, it's total mass confusion, and they're writing and talking, and sometimes they want to change the time. I mean, all these things, and all that takes place. And early on, I used to say something like, as everybody was going to the wall, and if you need me, I'll be around. Yeah, yeah. And then I recognized that absolutely nobody cared about that except <laughs> me. Uh-huh. And at that point, as soon as they turned and went to the wall, I left. Went for a long walk and never came. And just as a matter of practice, don't ever come back until the first session is well underway. And I know that I have done a very good job. If particularly in a second in a two day open or two and a half day open space, if on the second day somebody comes up to me and looks at me and says, "Excuse me, who are you? who are who are you?" <laughs> uh, you know, hey, listen, okay, now we now we get down to it. Uh-huh. But you know, the the interesting thing to me is open space. It's always fun. I've always enjoyed doing it, but it very honestly has become a. a 30, now one or two year natural experiment. And what the experiment has all been all about is, and I could put it in formal uh, experimental language, but what it really boils down to is um, the natural appearance of peace and high performance. And to the point where I find myself having watched this for 30 odd years saying, you know, the natural state is pacific and high performing. Now, peace for me does not mean lay back in the hammock or, or whatever. Peace for me is, is always that marvelous dynamic harmony where Potentially conflicting forces, you know, bounce off each other and amplify each other and wonderful things happen. Which is, you know, 
sort of a poetic way of talking about high performance. And so it turns out, my experience, peace and high performance are just flip side of the same coin. Every time you have a group of human beings that just sing, that's peaceful. But it's also another way of talking about groups of human beings that manage to do what they're doing with excellence. Um, so, you know, for me, peace is, I, I, I hate to say this, but I find less and less interest in trying to do peace building. Why? Because I don't think it's a separate thing. Peace is just the natural concomitant of well-functioning, self-organizing systems. Um, it is the flip side of superior performance. If you want to see something totally at peace with the forces at play and with themselves, watch Michael Jordan shoot a shot. <laughs> I mean, really. Mm -hmm. uh, peace is interior and it's exterior. It's, it, it, but it is by no means sleepy. Um, I'm not saying, I mean, I like naps too. No, it's funny. Some people, <laughs> I, I've, I've talked about that. You know, there's definitely this association sometimes uh, with that word. I know where we got it, and, but, but yeah. um, I just find that's not all that useful. Uh, so I want to get you back to another story uh, and, and, uh, you know, one that people just associate with high conflict, which is Israel and Palestine. And I know you've done, you did, if you're, if you're willing to go there, I know you did some work I, I mean, around I, that. And the, my only unwillingness is simply that I've told it so often, but, um, I, I've, I've have a number of Israeli and Palestinian friends and I've never yet understood how all that started to happen or why it was I ended up doing what I was doing. But anyhow, it happened. And at some point along the way, somebody or some several somebodies organized a gathering of 50 Palestinians and Israelis who were chosen precisely because they were not the peaceniks. These were the operational security types. And as one of them said to another, as we entered this uh, place, uh, you know, we're in business to kill each other. But we just don't want to do it stupidly. <laughs> uh, we're talk we had a two-star... That's an oxymoron, I think, but, you know, well, never mind. Yes and no. If you happen to be a soldier, right... Uh, the last thing you want to do is take life without a reason. And that's one of the major problems in the Middle East at the moment. Well, it's true almost anywhere. But, you know, you take a 17, 18-year-old recruit, put them at a checkpoint. Now, whether they should have been there or what, leave that issue aside, but they're there. And you have a woman coming towards him, uh fully uh, wrapped up as Muslim women are and there's a natural question, is she packing or not? And what do I do? How do I handle this? Hmm. And um, you can say anything you want to about 
you know, they shouldn't have been there in the first place. And, and I, I'm not going to argue with you. But the fact remains that we collectively, in one way or another, have set up these situations where you have 17, 18 year old fresh recruits facing a situation where, well, you get the point. And that's what yeah. they meant when they said, we don't want to do this stupidly. So uh, we did this in Rome. It was at the invitation of the Roman government. If you think about it, Rome is uh, about the closest neutral territory you could find. You were obviously not going to Istanbul or Egypt or Lebanon or someplace like that. It also turns out there's a very large Islamic community in Rome. So these 200, these 50 Palestinians just really show up. Um, and sorry, where did they, how did you, where did they come from? Like, how were they, were they an intact group? Were they just uh, from lots of different stakeholder groups? The Middle East, particularly Israel and Palestine, is a very small thing. Everybody knows everybody. And mm. I didn't put them together. And how did mm -hmm. they get there? I am sure there were a lot of conversations. Mm -hmm. But I don't think anybody ever argued with anybody's right to be there. Um, and, you know, we started out and it kind of looked like, as usual, the Israelis on the one side and the Palestinians on the other side. And guess what? Then they all sat in a circle and then the issues came out. And I have to tell you, it was every issue you ever heard of. And I'll mm -hmm. tell you more issues that you never could mm -hmm. have heard of. Mm -hmm. um, and for two days... They went at it, hammer and tongs. I mean, it, you could feel the passion. I mean, it just went in waves. And never once did I intervene. I'm supposed to get in the middle of a... Of <laughs> a no, thank you very much. Bunch of Israelis <laughs> and Palestinians going mm -hmm. at it, hammer and mm -hmm. tongs. Forget about Hebrew and, and Arabic. That's easy. They were switching off into English and German and French and any other language that anybody. This just went on and on and mm -hmm. on and mm -hmm. on. I mean, it, it. Were there any translators? No. Or not necessary. No. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, you know, these folks all. I mean, one of the, the, the curious things about translation is very often you don't need it. You do much better without it. Mm -hmm. um, unless you're doing a detailed diplomatic document. Anyhow, without going through any of the particular details, most of which I have no idea. I don't, to this day, I don't know what the issues were. I don't know what the discussions were. Um, mostly because I couldn't have understood them if I'd been a part of it and the nature of it was security and and uh, what's the right word? Any, uh, was was tight, to say the least. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but what I'll always remember till the day I die is the closing circle. Oh, I should say this, that, the, that by the end of the second day, it, it had become tense. I mean, it was tension, yes, but it was not... It, it was the most highly strung human atmosphere I have ever been in. It, was, it just sizzled. Wow. Uh, I love that phraseology, highly strong human atmosphere. It was, you know, it wasn't hate mm -hmm. or this or that or the other. Mm -hmm. It was just, wow. How many men, how many women, by the way? Remember that? There were probably three quarters men and 
and no, probably one third women and, and two thirds men. Okay. Uh, but I didn't ever count. Mm-hmm. That's another whole story, mm-hmm. um, which would be worthwhile telling, but not now. Mm-hmm. Um, in any event, um, that last day was just oh wow, and I didn't, I had no idea what we should, and we were going to have the next day was going to be okay. Let's pull this together and try and get some recommendations out of this, and. People went to dinner and they just weren't talking. And it, it wasn't about them being angry. It was just, as I say, I have never, I have never been in a situation where, where there was that much on the surface overt feeling. But whatever. So everybody went to bed. I couldn't go to sleep. They had me uh, in a guest house that overlooked the... Uh, Pavilion or gazebo. Why couldn't you sleep? I mean, I, I, I'm I was just, it just, it was, I, you know, I, I just couldn't sleep. Got to you. No, and okay. I'm looking out, at, out my window at this pavilion, and there's 50 chairs sitting in a circle. They leave the lights on all night for security reasons. And I'm trying to go to sleep, but I can't take my eyes off the circle. And finally, at, <coughs> I remember exactly three o'clock in the morning, it's, phrase from Rumi went through my head, there is a place beyond right thinking and wrong thinking, Mm -hmm. I'll meet you there. Mm -hmm. And I went to sleep. So the next morning I get up and 9 o'clock there's 50 Palestinians and Israelis all sitting in that circle and I say, well we had sort of a interesting day yesterday and I'm not quite clear where everybody feels like they should go for now. So this is what I propose. I am adjourning this meeting right now for an hour. Go where you want, talk to whom you want. If you want to go back to Israel and Palestine, the buses are right over there, just get on them. Um, And or at the end of an hour, come back here and we'll do whatever it is we're going to do next. And I left. And we were on a, a beautiful estate in downtown Rome. We were so close to the uh, St. Peter's that it was framed in the archway of the trees. So this is like 25 acres of very, very much um, Italian estate. And hearing the bells, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, no, no, you're overwhelmed. But in any event, nobody, I didn't see a soul, and I walked all over the place. Well, I'm coming back, and they just happened to have an olive grove, and the devil made me do it, and we're going to have, I figured the way to sort of end this would be a talking stick, so I whacked off an olive branch. And, you know, most Westerners wouldn't know what an olive branch looked like, but every single one of them knew exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. And I came back up to the circle, and I sat down and went from the outside and looked at every single one of them. Every single one of them was sitting there. So I sat down, and those of you have used the law of two feet talking. in its in its uh, in its best of form. Exactly, mm-hmm. and I said, "This is a talking stick. Uh, the rules are: if you have it, you may speak. If you don't, you will listen with respect." And I just passed it. And this olive branch went all the way around this circle of fifty Palestinians and Israelis. For two and a half hours, 
There was tears. There was laughter. There was anger. There was everything you could think of. And it came back to me. And while we'd been doing this, a friend of David Rosen, who was a senior rabbi from Jerusalem, who happens to be the senior imam from Rome, interestingly, had joined us. And David had asked me if it'd be all right if the imam said something. And I said, yes, but let's wait until we get this talking stick done. And uh, we did, and it was just absolutely quiet. And I nodded to David, and David nodded to the imam who stood up. And I don't know if you've ever met a senior imam, but you know when you have. Mm -hmm. And he was fully decked out. So he Mm -hmm. stands up. Uh, in this circle of Israelis and Palestinians, and he looks each one of them in the eye, slowly, around the whole circle. And he says, the Quran teaches us that to kill one person is to kill the world. To save one person is to save the world. We have a lot of work to do. And he sat down. And there was the kind of silence that... Christians only see and experience in cathedrals and other people in similar sorts of places. I mean, you could cut it. It was just, it was incredible. And then the next thing that happened was every single person stood up as if on cue. And of course not, there was no cue. And turned around and they're hugging and kissing and tears are streaming down their face. And by that time, it wasn't Israelis on the one side and Palestinians on the other. It was so mixed up you couldn't figure it out if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, nice squishy story. But these are people whose profession was to kill each other. That group never met again. They couldn't. There are a lot of people there who would never be able to say that they went to that meeting. But I know, as a matter of fact, there are a whole mess of very nasty things that did not happen because that meeting took place, a phone call here, whatever. Um, And then you step back and you look at it. If that wasn't high performance, (laughs) I I have no idea how you would, in, in that environment with those people, And if that wasn't peace at the deepest possible levels, Mm -hmm. did peace in the Middle East, uh, eternal peace break out? No. But on the other hand, I think what people tend to forget is that the Middle East has been a cauldron of human creativity for four or 5,000 years. And isn't it amazing? Um, and I'm not trying to justify what's happening now, but what's happening now is clearly part of an historical process that's been going on forever. Uh, it happens to be quite painful at the moment. So were the Crusades. So was, so was, so was, so was. And in the midst of that, what I feel to be this totally natural part of the way things are, peace and high performance, two sides of the same thing. 
breaks out without a mediator in sight. And if I've learned anything, it's quite simply, it's not that there aren't things to do. It's not that, you know, we just sort of go off and whatever. Um, we have we have the opportunity to create space for our fellows all over the place. But it isn't about the controlling. It isn't about the process. You know, everybody keeps trying to make open space into a process like other processes. It's not. What's really different is you don't do that process. That process does you. Well, <laughs> lots of luck if you want to do it, but <laughs> I tell you what, you'll screw it up. <laughs> Anyhow. Yeah, uh, you know, um, I, I, I got chills listening to that story. I've gotten chills in just about every single closing circle and in every single open space. It's always an amazing phenomenon watching divergent groups, and in that situation, hugely divergent yeah. groups yeah. come together. And, and as you say, uh, move into high performance. And um, I, I want to... And I think to, there's just one know, other thing. I've never seen it mm -hmm. not happen. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, have you, you, haven't, seen, you haven't seen it, it bomb? No. Because one of the things, provided, you know... What? Provided. Yeah. There was a real question that people cared about. Yeah. And people came, came of their own volition. Yeah. And then here's the question, you know, like you mentioned West Africa, you talked about watching that process there. And of course, I know, like, you know, Loretta Rader, I think you've known she was on the, and she, um, you know, she's doing some work in Sierra Leone. She was talking about, and I, I, I know from being in West Africa and other, we all know, you know, that there's, there are hierarchies in those systems sure. and open space is a very flattening uh, pro uh, okay, I'm not, it's not a process. Whatever it is, it's it's a flattening phenomenon. I mean, it kind of is like maybe the deepest democracy that you it can is, experience. But, but there are natural hierarchies. Hierarchy is not bad. Arbitrary hierarchy is bad. Yeah. I mean, I've been in some really nasty situations, and. It's a little inappropriate in this present setting, but I was very happy to have some equivalent of SEAL 6 folks at my shoulder. Mm -hmm. And I did not argue with their taking command. Thank you. Now, uh, one of the things you could see very plainly with those sorts of people was, yeah, there was, you know, there was rank stripes and this and that and the other but there, there was a natural hierarchy which was purely meritocratic and it shifted with a speed of light based on what was needed based on what was needed yeah and so you know nothing as far as I'm concerned is a matter of hierarchy it's when you try and make it the eternal right of kings then we get into a problem. Well, and, you know, and a practical note about trying to convene an open space, and you can say, every, you know, whoever comes is the right people, and, uh, you know, sometimes you need to get the system in the room uh, to be able to do the work. And no. there's a... Well, what I found, very honestly, 
if the issue is a hot one, the system is not going to not be there. I mean, if their future is riding on it, they're going to be there to save their ass. But Harrison, why is it not? This is a real question. Why is it not being used? You know, this we know you you know it. I know it. This is an amazingly effective. Uh, okay, why is word process again. Why is it not being because used? Because people are afraid to succeed. You know, if it acts, if if what happens in open space actually occurred, that's why I always start out by saying, "Don't believe a word I said." If it actually occurred, think how many tenured professors would be out of a job. Right. Think of how many consultants would be out of a job. What do managers do? Managers try to get rid of the informal system, which it turns out is the only thing that's working. And there is a so you're clearly would yeah. want to have a situation where it becomes patently clear that what we're doing <laughs> is destructive. The reason you tell, you did a TEDx on, uh, and you told the story of the AT&T Pavilion, which I'm not going to obviously ask you to retell here, but for the listeners, if you go, you'll see it on, if you Google Harrison Owen, I don't know, TEDx, yeah, I think on, it'll come up. It's, yeah, it's on YouTube. But, Okay. Um, but one of the reasons, you know, uh, like an organization like that can apply this is because there's a system and they say, come, you know, be, I mean, you know, we want, we want to convene this. And, um, in lots of circumstances, I mean, I hear what you're saying. People, if, if it's the right event, the system will be there. And I don't know. That's always true. Like, like, uh, you know, to, countries that are at war with each other, there's a lot of politics, open space, a process of getting all the various cabinet members in the room, perchance, could make a big difference. But, you know, like, getting that to happen is not, is not a slam dunk, even, even, if, even if... And I wouldn't want it to happen. The wow. condition for entry to any open space, as far as I'm concerned, is that you care. I would much rather have five people who seriously cared than 50 of all the right people who could care less. And I've just seen that happen again and again and again and again. I would happen to have been in South Africa a few days after Mandela got off of Robben Island and everybody thought the whole place was going to blow up. I don't know why it didn't, but it didn't. In any event, this was, when was it, 91 or so? I forget mm -hmm, exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, open space was not exactly a common idea. And I don't know how. I wasn't there to do open space. Um, anyhow, my, my hostess happened to own a hotel. And so on a Sunday night, they said, Harrison, you're doing an open space here and next Saturday. I said, okay. <laughs> and a half a dozen of them got on the hotel switchboard. And by, I don't know, in two or three hours, they had 200, 300 people. 
And um, actually, it filled up by Wednesday. I mean, there were a few odd spots. But I mean, this were, these were people, ANC people, military people. At least were, we had the Lord Mayor, we had the Bishop, we had kids from Kailicha, which is the local township, and blah, 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 blah. Um, it was exactly the same thing as happened with the Palestinians and Israelis. They all ended in tears. My favorite, the, the last issue to be posted was posted by this kid from Kailicha who couldn't... Uh, couldn't spell group dynamics, I'm sure. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure he could spell. And he got up and he says, I have one issue. My, my issue is fear. My fear, our fear, how do we convert this? And um, posted his issue and sat down. Well, it came time for his session, which was turned out to be in the last period in the day. I didn't attend the session, but I, I, you couldn't get away from it. I mean, here was this, I don't know, 18, 19-year-old kid. He had Bishop Tutu. He had the Lord Mayor of Cape Town. He had a guy I knew perfectly well was military arm of the ANC. Blah, 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 blah. It's people who care. I mean, we get so stuck on this notion that you have to have, quote, the right people. And what we get is a whole bunch of folks who don't care. What do you think would happen, I just got this image, if Obama decided to call an open space and invited all members of Congress... Uh, they probably wouldn't come in principle. I mean, you know, I, I'll tell you, the last... I mean, it would be a way more effective way to work through so many of the issues, oh, you yeah, know, no, that no, it's no. like, but oh, my God. The matter is Congress is, is and has always been an open space. People think that decisions gets made in Congress. It isn't. The vote mm. walks into the room. You just find out what it is. Right, right. And Washington is the open space because it's not that you do an open space. It is open space. The last, I mean, now switching my terms totally, but the last four-pay open space that I did was about two years ago, and the head of a very large agency in Washington called me up and uh, his words were, my people, he was just talking about the Washington office, not globally, but my people are so dysfunctional they couldn't find their ass with both hands. <laughs> now, the federal government had just done a, what do you call, employee satisfaction survey. And this particular agency had come out number three from the bottom. So, yeah, you know, there was a reasonable whatever. Anyhow, um, he says, I don't know what to do. I don't know what this open space is, I, but I've really run out of options. And so, hey, I, I'm desperate. Let's try it. And I said, well, okay. I, I happen to 
be an old Fed myself, and more to the point, I really support your mission. And so, if nothing else, as an American citizen, I would surely like to have some competent people involved. <clears throat> so, yeah, but there's a condition, and the condition is this be totally voluntary. <laughs> and he looked at me, and he just, you know, kind of broke out laughing. He says, if, if we make it totally voluntary, nobody will come. <laughs> and I looked at him, and I said, well... That may be. But if it turns out nobody comes, you don't have a problem. You've got a revolution. Now, there were 177 people in that Washington office. The day came, it was a two-day affair. We had 176. And one of them was a woman, and she was pregnant and was in a hospital. Amazing. Yeah, so... The law of two feet, once again. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So we are, um, you know, pushing. Yeah, yeah, we're pushing daylight here and uh, burning daylight here, as they say. And I and I I wanted to just, um, you know, there's so many places we could go. And and yet and yet maybe we just have to be realistic in terms of people's, you know, people's time and how long they have to listen. So I guess I guess a question in terms of trying to wrap things up is is um, like right well, how would you like to wrap things up in terms of uh, um, things, questions that come to my mind is what's most exciting to you right now uh, or any, uh, refl- it could also be reflections on what's been most exciting about the open space experiment or things that you are, are, are feel like they're in unrealized potential. It could be another question um, or it could just simply be your uh, – if you have any words of wisdom, I mean, those are a lot of different options, but I'm, I'm kind of inclined to leave it to you, Harrison, to see like how you, how, you know, it, how you want to conclude this. It's really very simple. Um, open space for me is a totally natural act. We do it all the time. Um, if I did anything, I gave it a name. And that's about all I ever did. But the one thing that we have learned is it bloody well works. And so... As far as I'm concerned, it's open space anywhere, anytime, with anybody, about anything, as often as you can. And you don't have to sit in a circle to do that. You can be sitting on the subway in New York, I love it, and look at somebody. (laughs) It drives them nuts. (laughs) And that's opening space. Parenting. And what does it have to do with peace, coming back to that word? This is going to sound really weird, but people don't like killing each other. I mean, they really don't. Um, What does it have to do with peace? Destructive conflict breaks out when there isn't enough space to work around in it. And so you find in the Middle East, anywhere... What do they do? And, you know, when we think about what we do under the heading of negotiating and mediation, we put them all in our closet and tell them to come out when they're nice. (laughs) Well, you know, the psychiatrists have demonstrated ever since, or the rat psychologists, put enough rats in a cage and they'll all kill each other. Mm -hmm. 
So what's the place beyond, and maybe this goes back to the Rumi quote, but what's the place beyond, you know, where uh, managers are holding on to their jobs, consultants are holding on to their jobs, you know, different things are happening because people are afraid of how simple this could be. And we may never get there. Mm-hmm. You know, it may be that. Well, what does high performance look like? You say, you know, that that we really use this kind of way of convening. We can get to a place that is very, very different, mm-hmm. very, very peaceful, very, I mean, peaceful, you know, active, proactively peaceful. Um, that is a, a whole different kind of take on what we currently see on the planet. Yeah, and some asteroid is going to knock us off one of these days, too. <laughs> no, I, you know, to me, this is not an absolute. I mean, yeah. you know, um, the fifth principle is when it's over, it's over. Mm-hmm. There will come a time for Homo sapiens, just like every single other species on the planet. We are not that special. Now, that sounds kind of hard-hearted, but it's true. Sad. It's true. I think if you have kids, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I understand. So, yeah. so do the ants feel the same way, I assume. Yeah. So, I, you know, I'm not trying to be hard-hearted or anything else, nor am I trying to be defeatist. I, You know, when I told the story on dancing for uh, on the TEDx thing, we had this company, I won't go through the whole thing, but they managed to do in two days what they knew was going to take 10 months. Now, if you figure that out as an increment of productivity, that's a 15,000% increase. Now, you can look at that number. I mean, if you don't just throw it out instantaneously, which most people would. But you can look at that number as an indication of how much gas we got left in the tank, which we've never even bothered to use. Now, what happens when we finally start, you know, knocking it off? Will we then have another 15,000? I have no idea. Mm -hmm. But we're so far away from that. You know, there is absolutely nothing that I've learned that we didn't already know. Every sailor understands. If you think you're in charge of the ocean, (laughs) you really are sick. Mm -hmm. And you talk about being in command of your boat, but you aren't even in command of your boat. And you know that. Mm -hmm. You're responsible for it. But you don't control it. Now, that to me is, you know, it, 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 things seriously start to change around. I think, you know, I mean, very honestly, I think the moment is the most exciting time to be. Uh, I'm just sorry I'm 80 because I don't have the energy to play it anymore. Yeah, you're optimistic? It's not about optimism. Mm-hmm. This present instant is showing the best and the worst of humanity. I mean, say what you will about all the, to this point, non-conversations about racism in the United States. This is wonderful. Never in my lifetime has there been that 
degree of honest conversation. Is it enough? No. So how many more years would you like to live if you had the option? Oh, I don't know. I quickly turn it. When it's over, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, it's well, kind of you know, like, it's kinda like a, a friend uh, invited me out in his boat in the fall before he took it out of the water. And we were out sailing. I've sailed boats all my life. And he says, you want to take the wheel? And I said, nope, I'd really like to be a passenger. Mm-hmm. And that's about the way I feel about it. And, you know, there's so many wonderful people. I, I ran into a 22-year-old young lady from a nasty little village in southern China who somehow or another, I mean, one of the brightest human beings I know, somehow or another it tied in with somebody in New York. I, I had no idea how all this happened. And she said, well, you know, this open space sounds very interesting. And I said, well, yeah, it could be. <clears throat> she said, I'd like to learn about it. I said, well, what are you doing next week? And she said, well, nothing. I said, right. I'm meeting with a hundred of your colleagues in Beijing. And I can't pay your ticket, but if you can get there, I'll get you into the meeting. And I'll introduce you to a hundred people using open space Everywhere from at the interface with the Chinese government and, and the Tibetans, no, that's a hot spot, mm-hmm. uh, to local communities, etc. Well, any next thing I know, she's on my plane and all that happens. And that <laughs> four-day meeting is over and I'm sitting outside, blue skies in Beijing, which never happens. And a guy from Rome and a guy from Brazil had heard that I was there, so they come up. And it turned out they were in Beijing doing an open, two-day open space for uh, Mercedes Beijing, or Mercedes China, the corporate entity that sells Mercedes. And apparently it was a big deal. Everybody was there. I didn't know anything about it. But it was a big enough deal that the mayor of Beijing was there for the whole time. And that was a big enough deal that the premier came. So the evening news in Beijing, <laughs> it was wonderful. It was the premier of China sitting in this sign that says, open space, for space. I mean, you know, the world was getting better than that. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. it's wonderful. Yeah. Well, listen, Harrison, we, we need to end. And uh, I really am so grateful to you for this conversation. And um yeah, um, thank you very, very much for your time and hope it's been a good experience for you. Love it. Take care. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Peace Building Podcast. Check out the peacebuildingpodcast.com for show notes and for more great information and resources. We like your feedback, comments, and suggestions. Please email them to susan at thepeacebuildingpodcast.com. And come join us again for next week's episode for more great thinking, innovations, and ideas to take our planet to the next level.